series on the Bible, the authority of Scripture. Last week, we looked at the origin and source of language, and, and sort of the big point from last week was that God is the first and primary user of language, the communicator, the, the talking God, who apart from creation, who apart from interacting with us, the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have always been communicating with one another. Jesus has always been the Word. And so human language finds its source not in our ingenuity, not something that we made, but in the talking God. And the talking God made us in his image. And, and so we can reasonably understand that when the talking God talks to us and he means to be understood, he will be understood. And that is what we see as he talks to Adam and Abraham, Moses. And that then brings upon us the responsibility that when God talks, to listen, to treasure, to receive, to commit to memory God's word, and, and to take our own use of language seriously, because our words are powerful. Our words give life and can wound. Our words can encourage or tear down. And this week, we're going to look at a slightly different question, which is why... Why do we believe the Bible is the word of God? Why this book? Let's assume there is a talking God, but so many other religions make claims that their book is the right book. And I'm sure if you talk to unbelieving friends, this is one of the primary objections they will raise, that everyone's got a book, and so we've got our book, and the Mormons have their book, and Islam has their book, and um, so why the Bible? And we will attempt to answer that this morning through five points. Why the Bible? Um, God has not left himself without a witness. And even his word is not left without a witness. Um, and so there is ample reason and proof for why we receive the Bible as the word of God. So let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 7. And our first point, and really this is the first and most important point, the point that really you wouldn't need the rest of the sermon. Point one is sufficient. And we're going to go through five testimonies to the scripture. But really, this first one is the most important one. And that is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. The testimony of the Holy Spirit. And the reason why this is central and primary is this. Whatever you would use to try to position the Bible into a position of authority must have more authority than the Bible. Let me, let me say that again. Whatever you would use, whether it's logic or experience or, or whatever, whatever you would use to position the Bible in the position of authority must have more authority than the Bible because it put it there. So if I can give you 27 logical reasons why the Bible is the word of God, logic ultimately has more authority than scripture. And so only the Holy Spirit really is sufficient for the task of testifying to the word of God. Now he is not the only witness, we will see, but he is the foundational and necessary one. Only the Holy Spirit can give the scripture or testify to the scripture's authority. And in John 7, 17, we'll start here tracking a thread through John. Jesus makes this promise. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Now this is a marvelous promise. What Jesus is saying is for anyone who truly wants to know what God's will is, for anyone who is truly seeking God, they will know whether or not his teaching is from God or, or his own. Now Jesus doesn't say how they will know. He just promises they will. This, this is a wonderful promise for us. I remember um, back in the summer of 1999 when the Lord put his hand down heavy on me as an unbeliever and I began to become more and more fearful of having to stand before him in judgment and I began to cry out, Lord, is this where you are to be found or should I look someplace else? Is, is this where you've revealed yourself or should I look to the Koran or something else? And I didn't know it at the time but I believe that is the hard attitude that Jesus is saying God will always reveal that for anyone who truly convicted of their sin is just saying, look, is this where I should look? Or kind of like the messengers that John the Baptist sent, you know, or should we look someplace else? That God will answer that. 
But turn, turn a chapter or two in John's gospel to chapter 10, and we'll see a little bit more of how this works. The gospel of John is really tied up with Jesus' authority, the question of Jesus' authority. Frequently, we will see not what Jesus taught, but after Jesus finishes teaching, a discussion about his authority to teach whatever it is he just taught. And so in John chapter 10, we read this, verses 1 to 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. And then jump down to verses 25 to 27. Chapter 10. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now there it is. The scriptures are self-authenticating. God himself has promised, through his spirit, to testify to his word. And this should be very encouraging, because this means when you're witnessing to your friends, when you're trying to talk to co-workers, that the, the best thing you can do is just get them in the text of the Bible. I mean, I've said this before, the scripture's like a lion. You, you don't need to defend a lion. You just open the cage and let it out. It'll take care of itself. And, and that's what God has promised about his word. You don't need to be an expert in archaeology. You don't need to be an expert in ancient linguistics and texts to defend the Bible. The Bible can defend itself. And we're going to look at some of those reasons further on in this message, but I just want to stop and ask you, how many of you were reasoned into believing the Bible was the word of God? And how many of you simply read it and one day it clicked, this, this is the word of God? The Spirit testified in some inscrutable way. And you just knew this was the word of God. Um, I'll give you an example of how this works, my sheep hearing my voice. I'm going to play a sample of a CD here. Okay, now everyone listen. And then I'm going to ask you a couple questions about it. So here we go. Does it really mean to be a Christian? Or more importantly, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. A follower of Christ. We have been exploring these last few weeks what it means to be made like Christ. I got one question to ask you. Who was that we were just listening to that was talking? Are you sure? We, we didn't even listen to the whole thing. I, mean, I can put it back on. Are you sure? How do you know that's Pastor Gary? You recognize his voice. That's how this works. That's how this works. Now, before you say, wait, 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 th that's different. We've, we've all heard, or most of us have all heard Pastor Gary talk before. And so that's how we recognize his voice. That's true. But every one of us has heard God talking before. In creation, Psalm 19, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Day unto day pours forth speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no language. There is no tongue where their voice is not heard. See, God has put out giant megaphones in creation around you declaring his glory. And then you read the Bible, and hey, that's the same voice. That's the same voice that I hear when I look up at the stars at night. That's the same voice that I hear when I look around at creation. Um, that, that's the way the Bible works. The Holy Spirit testifying to God's word. The Bible is self-authenticating. And, and I know this may not be the most intellectually satisfying reason, and we will move on to others that perhaps are, but at the end of the day, this is the decisive proof. This is the proof that is necessary. Without the Holy Spirit's testimony to the word, nothing of what follows will be to any avail. And it's also sufficient because if the Holy Spirit testifies to God's word, nothing else will be needed. But we will go on. In, in 1 Corinthians 2, and, and you don't need to turn there, we see that the Spirit's witness is in fact essential. Now listen to this. 
Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. So one of the reasons we've received the Holy Spirit is that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now listen to this. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Did you get that? The natural person, without the Spirit's work, is unable to receive God's truth. And the reason that is, and the reason why... Not everyone believes the Bible is true because that could be another objection you could raise. You could say, okay, if you're saying that the same voice talking in this word is the same voice talking in creation, then why doesn't that work for everybody? Well, the answer for that is, according to Romans 1, all of us are engaged in a truth project and it's called the suppression of truth. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodlessness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so what Romans 1 depicts us as is like children sticking our fingers in our ears, closing our eyes, going, mm-hmm, I can't see you. Pushing down our conscience, pushing down what we know to be true. And that's why Jesus said, really, the key is a heart seeking God, a heart looking for God. The decisive factor in whether or not you'll hear the Spirit's testimony is, are you actually looking for truth or are you looking for a convenient lie? Are you looking to justify yourself? Are you looking for someone else to justify you? And so that becomes a decisive feature that people are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. People are holding down what they know perfectly well to be true about God and the universe around them. And so if they come to God's word and that's what they're doing, they're just going to keep doing that. Like I said, how many of you, you've read the Bible before and one day you read it and just the lights turned on. God spoke light into your heart and your darkness and you saw the glory of God. You saw his truth. You saw your own sin and, and it wasn't an argument that got you into it but it was just a work of God pouring grace out in your heart. The, the beauty of this is God receives the glory for this and the beauty of this is we just need to be the messenger sowing the seed. We're going to move on to other arguments, to other reasons. This is not the only reason. But this is the primary, central, necessary reason. This would be enough. We could stop here and just listen to the rest of Pastor Gary's sermon. By the way, that sermon that we were listening to is his final sermon here. You can listen to it, download it from our sermon archive. That was his final message at the end of July 2012. So we've seen the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Let's move on to the second testimony, which is the testimony of Jesus Christ. The testimony of Jesus Christ. This is an, this is an argument that R.C. Sproul puts forward. And, and basically what, what it is is this. There are plenty of people I know and I meet who like Jesus, but aren't sure what to make of this book. They're, they think Jesus is really, really neat. They, they, they love his teaching on ethics. They love his teaching on humility, turning the other cheek. But they're not so sure what they think of this book. And so here, the argument is this. Okay, let's see what Jesus has to say about the Bible. So if the scriptures can give us an accurate picture of Jesus, forget whether or not they're inerrant for the moment, but if the scriptures can give us an accurate picture of Jesus, then that picture of Jesus they give us um, becomes compelling. And you're reading the Bible. Not sure what the Bible is, but you're reading it, trusting it's at least somewhat accurate. And this Jesus portrayed in the four Gospels is compelling. You agree with the temple guards who were sent to arrest him. No one ever spoke like this man. And you become convinced he is the son of God. He is the Christ. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He did die for our sins. He did rise on the third day. I believe that. Okay then. Then on the authority of Jesus receive the scriptures. Jesus declared the Bible's authority regularly. I'm just going to read some of these passages to you. Matthew 5, 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. 
or Matthew 24, 35. And this is just a bold statement. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I mean, that is either the speech of a megalomaniac or of the living God. It's either true or it's false. There's no middle ground here. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Or a little further, Luke 16, 17. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. That's just incredibly bold statements by Jesus. Jesus, if we're trying to look at how does Jesus treat the Old Testament, how does Jesus treat the Bible, he, he takes it as the word of God. Letter for letter, word for word. Open up to Luke 16. We alluded to this passage last week, but it's just so breathtaking in its audacity of its claims for the authority and the self-authenticating power of God's word that I want to look at it again. This is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. We're not sure if it's a parable or not. It doesn't really share many of the features common to parables. So it's entirely possible this is a historic account. We pick up the story in verse 19. Luke 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off. And Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And then he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may be warned, lest they also come into this place of torment. I'll just pause there. Rich man, after first seeking his own ends, then turns his attention to his brothers. And I think we would all agree his desire for his brother's salvation is good. You see, at this point, Abraham and the rich man do not disagree in their goal. They're both, I hope all of us would say, let's hope, let's pray that the rich man's brothers don't end up in hell. So here, Abraham and the rich man share the same goal. It's method. It's how to accomplish that goal in which they're going to disagree. The rich man says, send a resurrected man, Lazarus, whom they know to them. That's how I want you to bring them to faith. Abraham's response in verse 29. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. So Abraham's response, hey, they've, they've got the Bible. And the rich man responds, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And then this is stunning. He said to him, this is Abraham speaking, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Under, understand what Abraham is saying. This is more authoritative, more, as I would argue, self-authenticating than the most remarkable miracle you could imagine, a resurrection of a known man who is dead. And this plus a resurrection adds no more power. This, this is a remarkable statement by Jesus on the authority, the power, and the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. I mean, just get that. You would think, I would think, that if we could go to graveyard resurrections, we would get more converts. And Abraham says, no, you won't. You could work any miracle you want. And nothing is going to add convincing power to the scriptures. It is absolutely audacious, this claim. It's true. 
It's true, because we're tempted to believe, and I talk to people, hey, if I could just see a miracle, if I could just talk to God, then I would believe. No, you wouldn't. And in the book of Revelation that um, Jeff and Jim are teaching through, when God sort of peeks behind the curtain and says, hi, here I am, the world does not say, finally we know. Do they, Jim? They don't, they don't do that. They don't say, oh, at last, we know you're there, and we want to be your friends. What do they, what do, they do, Jim? They, they either hide in caves, crying out on them to fall on them, to hide them from the lamb and his appearance, and ultimately, they assemble an army to attempt to fight God. That's what they do. Nothing can add power to it. This is Jesus' view of Scripture. Do you see how high Jesus holds the Bible? Well, okay, so Jesus thinks the Bible is God's word, but how accurate does he think it means? Because one of the things I sometimes hear is, well, the Bible gets sort of the thoughts across. The Bible gets, you know, the big sort of general truths, gospel truths across, and it's good for that, but you shouldn't really take it too literally. You shouldn't take it too precise. There's room for, you know, all sorts of space in there. I don't think so. Um, you can either look in the back of your insert or turn to Matthew 22. You'll find it in both places. Matthew 22. And again, I, I just wish we, we could just spend a whole week on just any one of these points. This is one of my favorite examples of Jesus' view of Scripture. So again, the challenge here is this. If you are a Jesus follower, if you love Jesus, if you want to be like Jesus, then I encourage you to read your Bible like Jesus, to view your Bible like Jesus. And I think we'll see he has an incredibly high view of Scripture. And here we're going to see the accuracy because he reasoned tightly from it. Now, the, the story is this. Some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, which is why they were sad. You see? Okay. Um, they're going to come up to him and they're going to attempt to test Jesus. And they've got a bogus question. It's not a real question. They've got a bogus question. But the point of the bogus question is an attempt to demonstrate from their point of view how this notion of resurrection and afterlife is ridiculous. So they're not really asking this question. There was no real woman who married seven brothers. Rather, they are attempting to demonstrate to Jesus and the crowd how this notion of an afterlife is ridiculous because if there really is an afterlife, then that would mean there might be some people married to multiple people, and that's just crazy. It's interesting, the Sadducees have no problem with a man having seven wives, but the thought of a wife having seven husbands, that's just crazy. And so they come to him in verse 23. That same day the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no children, left his wife to the brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And they sort of feel like, gotcha. And Jesus will answer their bogus question. And then he will answer their real question, which is, is there in fact a resurrection? So his answer to their bogus question, Jesus gives, is this. In verse 29, Jesus answered, You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Ouch. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So, no real problem. Marriage is for this epoch only. And in the resurrection, there will be no marriage. Um, that, that this, this relationship of marriage pictures the reality of Christ in this church. And when the reality comes, the shadow will be done away with. No real problem. But then Jesus goes on to respond, to rebut this notion of, is there in fact a resurrection? And here's where I want to zoom in. It's, this is breathtaking. Verse 31. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Quote, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Now, Jesus' argument is not readily apparent, but I just want to observe first off, whatever Jesus just said won the day. 
and it was recognized to win the day. He silenced the Sadducees. The crowd is astonished. So what is the argument Jesus just made? What makes it a little confusing is it's it's sort of a two-point argument with a conclusion. If this is true and this is true, then there must be a resurrection. And that last piece, there must be a resurrection, is kind of assumed. Because Jesus will say, the first thing that's true, have you not read... I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That's the first piece. And God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And then the assumption, there is a resurrection. And everyone gets it, and everyone just goes, wow. And the Sadducees are silenced. I want you to get this. Jesus' entire argument hinges on the fact. The first quotation is from Exodus. It's when the burning bush episode occurs and and Moses approaches and he takes off his shoes and begins talking to God and when God reveals his name and who he is he says tell them I am sent you I am the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob and here's Jesus point I want you to get this Jesus point is that hundreds of years over 400 years after Abraham Isaac and Jacob have died God says to Moses I am not I was their God That's the entire argument. That when God spoke to Moses through the burning bush, he says, I am, hundreds of years after they died, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was. That's the blanks there. I am, not I was. And what that means is this. Jesus is hinging his entire argument on a teeny-weeny point of grammar. Am versus was. And I want you to note, all of his contemporaries Agree that that is a valid argument. You see, the Sadducees don't come up to him like so many today and say, Jesus, I think you're being a little overly literal. I mean, after all, it's just kind of the message getting across. And I don't know if it's really valid to make a point on such a small... No, they just, they're silenced. The crowd is astonished. Do you see how seriously Jesus takes the Bible? Do you see how tightly he reasons from it? Do you see how much weight he's willing to put on a tiny little word? Paul does the same thing in Galatians, arguing that the promise to Abraham was to seed, not seeds, plural. There's many examples of this type of tight grammatical reasoning in Scripture, which gives me great confidence in our study of the Bible, verse by verse, word by word. Are are we making mountains out of molehills? No, we're trying to follow the pattern of Jesus. We're trying to read the Bible the way he read the Bible. Jesus not only thought it would endure forever, he not only thought it was self-authenticating and powerful, he thought it was accurate down to the tense of a tiny little verb. And so if, if, if we won't receive the witness of the Holy Spirit, perhaps we'll receive the testimony and witness of Jesus to the Scriptures. Thirdly, the testimony of the Bible itself. This may seem a little circular. You know, how can we look to the Bible to prove it's the word of God when we're not sure if it's the word of God? And all I want to do here is just make two points. The first is there can be no third option. And what I mean by that is this. The Bible is either what it says it is or burn it because it's crazy. There's no option for the Bible to be a sort of good book with some sort of good principles. And, you know, don't, don't take it too seriously, but you can get some good stuff out of it. It just says way too many high and exalted things about itself. Consider the testimony of Psalm 19, 7 to 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Or Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Or a little later in Psalm 119, verse 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Or just take Paul's instruction to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The Bible will not allow some middle ground answer. Well, it's a good book, but don't take it too seriously. No, the Bible claims to be the very word of God. The Bible makes claims about itself enduring forever. You can't have it both ways. And so we need to decide what we think of this book 
We need to receive the testimony of the Holy Spirit to the word. We need to receive the testimony of Jesus. And we need to understand the Bible won't give us some third option. The Bible is sort of doubled down all in saying it's the word of God. Secondly, we can see the manifest power of scripture to change lives. This is an experiential argument. But I still think it's valid. In John 17, 17, Jesus' great high priestly prayer, he says, Father, sanctify them, which is make them holy, conform them to my image. In truth, your word is truth. So last week we could have added another thing God likes to do with his word. How does he sanctify his people? How does he mold them and shape them? With his word. And for those of you who've walked with the Lord long enough or know people who have, you've seen the power of Scripture to change lives. The power of the Bible when received by faith to give hope to the discouraged, to give joy to the sorrowful, to give endurance to those who are bearing under heavy burdens, to, to give people the ability to put off sinful behavior and become more like God and to grow in holiness. The Bible is powerful to do that. Paul, writing about God's word and the scripture and the gospel, says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What he's saying is that by which you are being saved, the Bible can speak of the salvation in three tenses, past, present, and future. When speaking of salvation in the past, it's looking to justification, that moment in time when we were forgiven because we were united to Christ by faith. And when the Bible speaks of salvation in the present tense, as it does here and as it does in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it's referring to that process of sanctification whereby God refines us and cleanses us by his word. And Paul says, if we hold fast to this message that he preached, we will be saved, we will be cleansed, we'll be changed. The Bible over millennia has demonstrated its power in the lives of men and women to, to transform them. Think of Paul in, in Romans 12, to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we've seen the first three testimonies. The testimony of the Holy Spirit to the scriptures testimony of Jesus Christ. And th these are just small samples. I mean, there's whole books on that back table just to Jesus' view of the Bible. Um, and I'd recommend that back table is filled with books, and I'm not just trying to show off my library. My goal is, in the last 20 or 30 years, there's just been a tremendous wealth of well-written, helpful books on the doctrine of the Bible, which is because in the last 20, 30, 40 years, the Bible has come under attack more than ever. And I just want you to know and be encouraged that there are answers. There are resources to help. If your friends or co-workers are throwing questions at you, or if your own heart is coming up with thoughts and questions and doubts, peruse that selection. I mean, if you want to borrow something, just talk to me. I need some of them for the rest of this series, but I'll be happy to point you in a good direction. But there are resources. I plead with you, if you're not sure what you think of the Bible, resolve that in your heart. Take the time to work through it, to pray through it. The reason there's a line in your notes now as we move on to the last two testimonies is I think that as much as they will encourage our faith, they're, they're a good couple steps down in authority. The testimony of the Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary and powerful. The testimony of Jesus Christ, absolutely powerful the testimony of the scripture to itself. But now we're going to move a step down to sort of more evidential arguments, which I think are powerful to close the mouths of skeptics and powerful to increase the faith of God's people, but not necessarily if I had an unbelieving friend where I would spend all my chips. I'd encourage you, if you're witnessing, I'd encourage you to stick to the top three, mostly. Um, I think that's where the real power is. Point people to Jesus. Get people in God's word, reading it for themselves. That's where the real power to transform and change will be found. But having said that, point number four, the testimony of fulfilled prophecy. The testimony of fulfilled prophecy. There are hundreds of prophecies in Scripture. Um, and I'm just going to point our attention at three. Because not all prophecies are the same in regards to their um, 
power and their impressiveness. There are some that are less impressive. Let's say the prophecy that the Messiah would enter into Jerusalem riding a donkey. And then you read in the Gospels, Jesus says, hey, I've read that passage. Messiah is supposed to enter Jerusalem on a donkey, so one of you guys go get me a donkey. That's not terribly impressive, right? I mean, that, that, that one we can see how that one could be faked. But I'm going to point you just to two or three that are just wow. And again, there are books back there. If you want to go deeper with this, we could spend a whole series just on biblical prophecy. So I know I'm just scratching the surface here. But in Isaiah 44, let's just turn there. I want you to see this one. This one is stunning. Absolutely stunning. In Isaiah 44, the Lord... Through the prophet Isaiah, Israel is not yet in captivity. Israel has not yet been um, taken into exile by Babylon. That won't happen in Isaiah's time. It'll happen during the time of uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. But Isaiah is predicting this captivity. And then he's going to give a word of comfort. And he's going to predict the return. Remember, Israel's going to go into captivity. They're going to stay there for 80 years. And then they're going to come back. And Isaiah writing 150 years before the captivity it has this to say, Isaiah 44. We're going to pick it up in verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins." Now, keep in mind, they haven't been destroyed yet. He's already predicted the captivity, and now he's saying, after the captivity, I will restore, I will rebuild. Who says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. And then here it is. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Isaiah names the Medo-Persian leader who isn't even born yet. 150 years before he's born, names him. I mean, if this isn't that Babe Ruth moment where he's sort of pointing to the stands, I don't know what is. This isn't some vague, along will come a powerful leader and he will do much harm. He names him. And, and our discoveries of the Dead Sea Scrolls puts Isaiah back at this date. We know this wasn't written after the fact. And this is just stunning. He names the guy. And you can go to Nehemiah 1 and see this is exactly what happened where after the years of, of captivity, Cyrus issues a decree sending them back, paying for the rebuilding of the temple because he wants all the people's gods to, he wants them to pray to their gods for him. It's exactly what happens. Israel hasn't even been taken captive yet. Just stunning in its accuracy. Or in Daniel 9, Daniel predicting to the year when the Messiah would come. Daniel's 70 weeks. If you were in Daniel class last summer, you, I'm sure you've seen this, and we're not going to spend much time here. But Daniel prophesies a calendar for Israel. And again, Daniel gives us a very clear start date. In Daniel 9, 24 to 26, 70 weeks, or literally 70 sevens, of years are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. Now that's pretty specific. Here's, here's what's going to take place in these 77s. There's going to be finished transgression, put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now there it is again. Before it happened, Israel actually is in captivity now, but apparently Daniel's read Isaiah, so he knows there will be a word to restore. From that date, and Nehemiah gives us that date specifically. From that date, no one understand the rebuilding 
of Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then, for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled times. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one, or Messiah, because remember, anointed Hebrew Messiah is just Hebrew for anointed one, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And Daniel nailed it. 483 years after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem is exactly when Jesus came and was crucified. And again, we know this was written before it happened. This isn't like drawing the bullseye after you shoot. These are just stunningly accurate prophecies. And I'll just read you a couple, you know, thousands of years before crucifixion was ever invented, the, the, the way that the Messiah would die was given to us. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen: For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. This, of course, is the psalm that Jesus quotes from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or Isaiah 55, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastening that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Speaking of the suffering servant. And again, these are books that we know historically. We can prove were written before Jesus' crucifixion. This is not the case of shooting and then drawing the bullseye around what you shot at. At least in these cases. And then Zechariah 12.10. It's one of my favorite passages. This is speaking of Israel's future restoration, their future repentance and coming to faith and trusting in Messiah who they've rejected for so long. Zechariah 12. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now this is before crucifixion was ever invented. This Messiah, who in Zechariah is also identified as God, will be pierced for our transgressions. They have pierced my hands and feet. The Jews will look on him whom they have pierced. And we could go on and on and on, and like I said, there are books on that back table that do exactly that. Just three examples. The Bible just absolutely nails it time and time again prophetically. These are just three examples of just wow. There are many, many more. And finally, our fifth testimony, the testimony of historical accuracy. The testimony of historical accuracy. And what I mean by that is this. The Bible, when it speaks about ancient times, ancient peoples, gets it right. It gets it right. I'm just going to read a quote for you. Again, this is one of those things where there's whole books back there that deal with this. So in the five or six minutes that remain, we're just going to scratch the surface here. But I just want to read this to you. The Bible has become a significant source book for secular archaeology, helping to identify such ancient figures as Sargon, Sennacherib, Horam, and Hazar, and the nations of the Hittites. The biblical record unlike other scriptures, is historically set, opening and inviting verification. Two of the greatest 20th century archaeologists, William F. Albright and Nelson Gluick, both lauded the Bible, even though they were non-Christians and secular in their training and personal beliefs, as being the single most accurate source document for history. Over and over again, the Bible has been found to be accurate in its places dates, records, and events. No other religious document comes even close. The 19th century critics used to deny the historicity of the Hittites and the Horites and the Edomites and various other peoples, nations, and cities mentioned in the Bible. Those critics have long since been silenced by archaeologists' spades, and few critics dare to question the geographical an ethnological reliability of the Bible. The name of over 40 different kings of various countries mentioned in the Bible have been found in contemporary documents and inscribed outside of the Old Testament and are always consistent with the times and places associated with them in the Bible. Nothing exists in ancient literature that has been even remotely as well confirmed in accuracy as the Bible. Let me just give you one example. 
uh, this, this one I found just, wow. In Exodus 1.11, we are told that the children of Israel built the treasure cities of Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. In Exodus 5, we are informed that they made bricks using straw and then using stubble because no straw was given them to furnish for that purpose. In 1883, Naville, and in 1908, Kyle found at Pithom, one of the cities built by Israel, that the lower courses were built of bricks filled with good chopped straw. The middle courses have less straw, including stubble. The upper courses were made of pure clay, with no straw whatsoever. It is difficult to read the biblical account and not be astonished at the amazing confirmation which archaeology has given to the Bible. Just another one of dozens of examples that I could give. The Bible is, is, is historically accurate. Every time people have gone up to test and challenge and prove this, it gets confirmed. You can read Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Faith. He went out to dis disprove the Bible. You can talk to Mike Doty. He, he can give you names of people who have set out to prove the Bible's wrong, only to be confirmed that what it says about history, it says truly. And it's been around for 2,000 years for people to try to disprove it. And it's... it's endured the test. My final point here on the testimony of historical accuracy is the manuscript evidence. Um, the Bible is the single most attested to ancient document. The New Testament is. The single most attested to ancient New Document. Now it may surprise some of you to know we have no perfect, complete Greek New Testament. There is no manuscript that we have which is without error. There's scribes and copyists as they copy things, you know, make notations and stuff. And so the way we put together our New Testament is we compare the available documents and we, um, scholars, you know, and text critics, um, comparing the documents, you know, if 95% if of them say A and, you know, 1% say B and 1% say C and 1% say D, we're pretty sure A is the correct reading. And that's the way we, we form our text. If you've read any ancient documents, the Iliad by, by Homer, that's how it was done. Now here's what I want you to understand, and the blanks are this. For the Bible, for the New Testament, we have 25,000 partial and complete New Testaments. 25,000. I have a list here of the runner-ups of the ancient documents. Second place, and here's the other blank, is Homer's Iliad, coming in with 643. Another big difference here is this. Homer's Iliad, the oldest copy of Homer's Iliad is 400 years after the fact. Is 400 years after Homer. Our oldest texts of the New Testament start at about 30 years. Papyri 52 is a fragment of John's Gospel dating from about 125 AD. We think he wrote it around 90. It's about 25, 30 years after the fact. And then they start coming in more and more and more. And by the time you get to the third and fourth century, we just have tons of texts to compare. So there isn't this big gap. There isn't time for legends to emerge. Um, behind Homer, we have Sophocles with 193. Then we have Aristotle with 49 copies. Tacitus with 20. Livy with 20. Caesar with 10. And then the numbers start going down to the single digits. So number one, 25,000. Number two, 643. Number three, 199. Number four, 49, 20, 20, 10, 10, 9, and down it goes. It is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. The amount of evidence we have to recreate our New Testaments. To, to the confidence we can have in its accuracy. The evidence that God has preserved his word unlike any other book or document. God has not left himself without a witness. So to recap, the first and most important evidence is simply the scripture's testimony to itself. Just reading it and the power of the Holy Spirit applying it. Don't feel like you have to know all this archaeology and every prophecy to be able to go share your faith. Just get someone reading it. Let the lion out of the cage. Point him to Jesus and his testimony. And if you know people who are fans of Jesus, who love Jesus, but who aren't big fans of the Bible, challenge them with the way Jesus reads his Bible. The testimony of Jesus. And then the testimony of the Bible itself. 
It can't just be a good book. And it has tremendous power to change and transform. Or you can look to the testimony of fulfilled prophecy. Just breathtaking accuracy. And then historical accuracy. The testimony of historical accuracy. That just the amount of copies of the New Testament that the Lord has preserved and, and its ability to speak accurately and truthfully about history is, is unprecedented. And for all these reasons, we receive the Bible as the Word of God. We receive it by faith. But it's not a blind faith. And so I just hope that as we've looked through this, that your faith has been encouraged, your confidence has been bolstered, and your zeal to read the Bible, to believe the Bible, to live the Bible, to speak the Bible, to encourage others to read it, has been increased as well. God will testify to his word. God will vindicate it. He promises his word will not return void, but it will accomplish his purposes. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for testifying to your word. We thank you for preserving your word. We thank you for living in a time where due to the printing press we can own multiple copies of your word. Lord, help us not to presume upon those riches but to study it, to, to live it, to breathe it. That like Jesus, um, we would just speak and know your word. Lord God, use your word to change us into your image. Use your word to give life to the dead. To speak light into darkness. Use your word to draw men to your son. For your glory. For our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.